0: Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the season of Epiphany. God, we thank you for all that this season entails. God, I pray that you would open our eyes just as we uh, sang just a few seconds ago. You'd open our ears. You'd open our minds. You'd open our hearts by way of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we as your people sit under your Holy Scriptures we ask that you would change us, you would sharpen us, you would correct us, you would encourage us by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, welcome to Epiphany, but uh, I love Christmas, sorry. So I love that we are three days uh, just past Christmastide, and if you couldn't tell over the last couple of weeks, I absolutely love... Christmas in this season. And gosh, I'd love to take credit for how perfectly our uh, scripture in Mark lines up with those last couple of things that we saw in Luke chapter 2 and Matthew uh, as well, but I can't. It just happened that way. We are back in our Mark series. The King is on the move, uh, and it just lined up perfectly. As some of my Presbyterian friends might say, it was predestined to be so. Regardless of how you choose to see it, our passage this morning lines up really well. I'm kind of beside myself, actually. So on Christmas Eve, we looked at Luke chapter 2. If you don't remember, this is the one with the shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem. And in the middle of the night, an angel appeared and said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Then on the eighth day of Christmas, or New Year's Day, we looked at Matthew chapter 2. This was the story of the wise men, the magi. No angelic visitation here, but we do see a celestial sign. A big star rose up and alerted these noble academics that a king had been born to them. Here's what they said when they met Herod. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw a star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where this Messiah was to be born. And they replied, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here on the screen, you're going to see the monikers for Jesus, his titles from the last couple of weeks in Christmastide. He's the Savior, he's the Messiah, the Lord, the King of the Jews. Micah 5 being quoted in Matthew chapter 2, he's the ruler and shepherd, but We're not in Christmastide anymore. We're back in the book of Mark in our series. Look at where we started a few months ago. This is Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So what Mark is doing here in verse one, he's telling us right up front where he's going, why he's writing. But it's taken him eight chapters to get there. Let me explain. Chapters 2 through 5, we learn that Jesus has ultimate authority over nature and demons, diseases, and even death. In chapters 6 and 7, we learn that he has authority to correctly interpret the law, that he can whip up dinner for 5,000 peeps just like that. And all of those things are really amazing. And they're supernatural, but they don't explicitly tie to Mark's claim in 1 verse 1. That Jesus is the Messiah, the very Messiah. Son of God. But all of that's about to change because we are at the hinge. We all know what a hinge is, right? It brings two things together, a door and a door jam, a femur and a fib-tib combo, a box and a lid. A hinge can give purpose and action to two things that are disparate, right? Because a femur that's attached to a fib-tib combo Becomes a leg. A box and a lid with a hinge between them becomes a chest, maybe by which you could bring treasure to this newborn king. It brings action and purpose, but a hinge can also bring two main ideas in a book together, and that is where we are with Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. This is the part of Mark's gospel that many scholars call the hinge or the very center of his portrayal of Jesus' life in ministry. Now, I don't want you to be distracted by my supreme command of clip art here, okay? Because my clip art skills are not what's on display, all right? But what we see is that Mark is recorded in the first eight chapters of his book. It comprises the bulk of Jesus' earthly life and his ministry. Then, with our hinge, eight twenty-seven through thirty-three, Mark then makes the descent towards Golgotha, where Jesus will prove his divinity by way of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So we are at the very center of Mark's gospel. When we get here, Jesus likely has single-digit months before we, before he will arrive in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And by Friday of that week, he will be in the grave. So to our hinge in earnest, I want to point out there are two parts. Verses 27 through 30 is part one, 31 through 33, if you're following along. Verse 27, here we go. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? At this point, Jesus once again leaves Galilee. He heads north about 25 miles into the Gentile region of Caesarea Philippi. The reason for this, one commentator said, is that he likely wanted some privacy with his disciples as he begins his last chapter here on earth. So while they're making this pretty big hike, Jesus drops a pretty big question on them. Hey, who do people say that I am? On the surface, it's a fairly straightforward query, but it's pregnant with implication, identity, and insight into how Jesus has been received, verse 28. So they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. It's an interesting list. It gives us profound insight into the, who, who the crowds had surmised Jesus might be at this point. What we don't hear from them is Son of God, Messiah, the Lord, the King. It's a list of dead guys. John the Baptist has been dead for a minute at this point. He's been beheaded by Herod. You and I, because we have the New Testament at our disposal, we know that Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins, that they were only six months apart. They had grown up, kind of parallel tracks They'd even done ministry together in the same regions, but apparently some of those crowds that were experiencing Jesus of Nazareth hadn't made that connection, okay? Now, Elijah, he's a better option because he's been gone for about 900 years at this point, but if you remember, he was taken up in the air, presumably to heaven, by some chariots of fire, which is really cool. And I think one could make the case that Elijah is a really good option here. He wasn't a dead guy per se, so there's that. He's got that going for him. He also hasn't been around for nine centuries, so it makes sense why Israel would be thinking maybe Elijah is coming back. So maybe this Jesus that we see doing these crazy things is actually Elijah come back some 900 years later. But remember what Jesus said to the crowd in Matthew 11. He said, Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Listen up. And if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So Jesus says J the B is actually E, okay? The crowds are still trying to figure it out, though. But there's one last option, and it's a pretty good one. They say, well, maybe he's one of the prophets. Uh, Osborne says this likely stems from the belief That in Jesus and in John the Baptist, the prophetic age had returned. Perhaps especially Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses was back. This is a very good option. It's been over 400 years since a prophet has spoken on behalf of Yahweh. And so when John and Jesus show up, miraculous things are happening. They're teaching with authority for the first time in 425 years or so. And so there are some people in the crowd that are saying, man, I I think we might be back, like Israel might be back online. It's the old, the familiar ways. I think there's some nostalgia baked in there as well. But the point is, when the disciples relay the answer to Jesus' question, who do the crowds say that I am? These crowds who had seen him perform miracles and speak and teach with authority, they're not sure of who he is. They're not sure of his true identity. And my guess is the disciples are running this similar grid in their heads. There's some back channel conversations happening with him. Thomas, uh, do you think he's Elijah? I mean, he's doing some crazy stuff. He could also be one of the prophets. I mean, dude, what if, what if the prophetic age is back? Wouldn't that be awesome? Now we get to the center of the hinge. Verse 29. But what about you? Who do you say I am? You've been walking with me for years. You've seen all the miraculous things I've done. You've also seen the very mundane, domestic things. After all of that, who do you, disciples, say that I am? Peter, being Peter, jumps in with both feet, and he gets to the center, the heart of Mark's book, his thesis, and he just says, you're the Messiah. Mark told us at the very beginning that this is where he's going, Now at the very center of it, Peter gets it right. He's not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not one of the prophets. He is the Messiah who was to come and make all things right. And I can imagine the disciples. They're somewhere along this road up to Caesarea Philippi. And when Peter just blurts it out, I can imagine like heads bobbing, like, yeah, man, Peter got it. Right, I can imagine some misty eyes. It's this really incredible moment for like three seconds. The very center, the very thesis of Mark's book, it's a magic moment for three seconds. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. So we go from magic moment. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was to come. Wait, what? Don't tell anyone, but you're, you're the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the one who does miracles. You're the, you're the son of God. You're eternal. John said that you were the, oof, you're the lamb. Like Maybe like the Passover lamb. Oh, that's how you're gonna take away the sins of the world. Verse 32, but Peter is not tracking. Peter takes the king of the universe aside and he begins to rebuke him. No, 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 no. No, Jesus, you're not dying. That's not how this works. You're the Messiah, you're the king. You made all this stuff. You don't die, you don't suffer. We have you, I, I have a sword, plus you're eternal and you, 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 like you could just talk and everybody would die. This is not how this is gonna go, Jesus. But Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples. He said, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind human concerns. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. Ouch. Ouch this is the same guy that just got the thesis right five seconds ago. Now, Jesus, the Lord of the universe, says, get behind me. Can I just say that I get Peter here? Um, I'd definitely be one of those folks at this time who had a really hard time accepting that the Messiah being here, being online, flesh and blood, does not equal freedom from oppression, does not equal a renewed temple situation, that'd be really hard for me to accept. But this is not what God had in mind. Remember what we said a few minutes ago about a hinge, how it can bring two main ideas in a book together. Main idea number one is Jesus is Messiah, the Messiah, the one who was to come. Main idea two is that he must suffer and die. This is the hinge of salvation history. Jesus does equal Messiah. He's the promised one, the Savior, the Son of God. But verse 31 is also and equally true. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders that he must be killed and after three days rise again. These two main ideas do not compute for Peter. How could they? This is the one that was promised. This is like a solid wood door being attached to a femur. You have that in your, in your mind's eye? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not a thing. It won't work, or maybe rather it should not work. But it's true. They go together. The Messiah must suffer. And it's the only way this could have happened. The Baptist was right, John 1 Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hebrews 9. For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Paul in Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Near the end of Peter's life, his tune has changed. This is 1 Peter 1. who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so your faith and your hope are in God. We're gonna see in the rest of Mark's book as he takes us to the hill that this Messiah, this son of God is also the suffering servant. In the last three weeks we've seen that An angel and a star heralded the good news that there was a baby to be born that was born in Bethlehem. This baby is the Savior, the Lord, and the King. We've also just heard this morning from the Apostle Peter, who rightly said he is the Messiah. The question for us is what about you? Who do you say he is? Let's pray. Jesus, we confess our deep need for you. Lord, we um, probably more times than we want to admit are like the crowd's. where we've seen what you've done, we engage in some fanfare. We don't always see you correctly. Lord, whether from self-righteousness where we think that we have what it takes and we can work our way into your good graces, Lord, whether we um, put other things on the throne of our hearts, God, we um, ask your forgiveness. And we ask, Lord, in this epiphany season that you would reveal yourself more brightly to us than ever before. God, shine your light into those corners in our heart, in our minds, Lord, you are the king and I pray that you would be so in our lives. That that universal truth, that good theology, Lord, it would make its way into our hearts. Jesus, we want to lift you high in our lives. Holy Spirit, would you allow us the grace and the privilege to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.